0: Well it's a delight for me to be back again and um, um, in Moody's Burn it's always a joy for me to come here and uh, I want to read tonight from John chapter 1 from verse 35 through to the end of verse 42 and um I kind of thought a little bit about coming um, to Moody's Burn and I felt that if I was going to come off and on that I would be better to start um, looking at something that I could sustain and keep going and what I want to do is just look at the first installment of the life of Peter. So you now know that if you ever invite me back again, you'll be getting the second installment in the life of Peter, and that will be my plan um, moving forward so that um, I can... Just work on a little bit of a series. I trundle around from place to place um, in, in the role that I have. I represent a college and lead a college and I get to show up in all kinds of places. And I seldom get a chance to really do a series. And, and so it's a joy for me to be able just, anytime I'm here, to pick up and follow on from where, from where we've been. So I hope that um, you'll understand and forgive me for that. Let's read together, John 1, verse 35. So the next day, John was there again, As John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, "Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked... What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that john had who heard what john had said and who followed jesus the first thing andrew did was to find his brother simon and tell him we have found the messiah that is the christ and he brought him to jesus jesus looked at him and said you are simon son of john You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. And we'll end there at verse 42. Just a prayer together. Lord, as we think a little bit about how Peter met Jesus, um, encourage those of us who have met Jesus in our hearts as we reflect on the circumstances that you used to bring us to faith in Christ. And Lord, if by any chance we're here tonight and we've never met Jesus, then we pray that um, you'll stir us in that direction. And thank you that you know all of our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you'll just inspire us and encourage us as we think about this uh, straightforward story of introduction to the Savior and uh, cause us to leave here Lord with a a fresh sense of hope that maybe just maybe we could be used by you to introduce someone to the Savior and we ask this in our Lord's great name, Amen. So for me Peter is one of the most intriguing characters in the entire Bible. I'm very fond of the character of um, Peter. I think for a number of reasons. I think because I can identify with him on so many different fronts. Um, I think in describing Peter's journey um, from this moment to the moment that he arrived in heaven from this moment that we've read about here in John chapter 1. I think in describing that journey, you, you, you wouldn't describe it as a straight road. It was a road that had a series of twists and turns and it was a, a, a road that had a series of highs and, and lows. Peter for me is a fairly complex person, um, I'm interested a little bit in psychology, not hugely but a little bit about what makes people tick and I, I think that Peter would have been a really interesting character to study and to learn a little bit about the events and the experiences and circumstances that shaped him and think a little bit about the gene pool that he um, came from. He was impetuous, he was impulsive, and you might even dare to describe him as unstable on occasions. At one moment he is on the mountaintop offering words of sheer bravado, and the next minute he is in the depths of despair and despondency. And uh, often Peter is either up there or he's down there, He's, he's not often found in between. So for instance, at one minute you find him walking on the water as he swings his legs out over the edge of the boat and says to Jesus, if that's you invite me to come to you, you could invite me to come to you and and Jesus invites him and he's walking on water. Not many people have walked on water over the years but Peter did. But the next minute... In the very next minute he is sinking down into the depths of the Sea of Galilee. At one minute uh, you find him in the upper room and Jesus reveals to his disciples that all of you tonight are going to fall away on account of me. Um, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Jesus revealed to his disciples in the upper room on the night of his betrayal, you're going to fall away on account of me tonight. And it was Peter who stood up in, 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 with, with sheer bravado and said, Oh, not me. You can count on me. Though all men deny you, I'll never deny you, Peter said. But he did. That very night before the rooster had crowed um, for the second time, was it? or the third time I can't remember which but before the rooster had crowed before the night was through before a little servant girl around a charcoal fire she says don't I recognize you aren't you one of that Galilean preacher's disciples aren't you one of his followers haven't I seen you with him oh no not me I don't know who you're talking about I don't know the man really Peter I swear to you I don't know him and uh, just uh, a few hours ago you said that though everyone deny Christ you would remain faithful you find him on the day of Pentecost he preaches this amazing sermon and 3,000 people are converted I mean he's leading from the front he goes down from that upper room having been filled by the spirit goes down and preaches on the streets of Jerusalem fearless preacher 3,000 people converted but you read over a few chapters and you dig into the likes of Galatians and, and you find that he has become so deceived by heretics that have invaded the church that he's no longer sitting beside Gentiles at the same table because he doesn't view them as equal incredible and, and Peter's a really interesting character um, sometimes we think about these apostles and we think oh these guys it was just a straight course to heaven well Peter's course to heaven was anything but straight and, and yet the good shepherd kept his hand upon Peter and, and uh, pursued him and brought him through each of these difficult periods in, in his life And I think that's why I can identify with Peter so much. I just feel God has been so amazingly gracious to me. I know that you sometimes look at speakers at the front of churches and you think, Oh, those guys have got it all together. They don't have it all together. I can tell you they don't. And God is gracious with me and God is gracious with every speaker that stood here. And, uh, and, and all of us are on this journey with Jesus. And, and the only reason that we continue is because Jesus is a good shepherd. And he won't let any of his sheep go. And he pursues them when they wander into Bypath Meadow. And he brings them back again and he's a good, good shepherd, Jesus. And that's the only reason that I'm still here. Well, I want to try and lift um, three things out of this story that I... Um, have read for you. I want you to think a little bit about the the providence of God at work in Peter's life and and some of the background um, details surrounding his meeting of Christ. Secondly, I I want you to um, think about the persuasiveness of Andrew as he comes to Peter and his brother and persuades him to come and meet, the, meet meet Jesus and then finally for a few minutes at the end I, I want us to think a little bit about the predictions that Jesus makes uh, because Jesus says you are Simon son of Jonas but you will be called Cephas and uh, Jesus is really Predicting a transformation that will take place in Peter, so those are the three things. And the first thing that I want to look at is really just the providence of God. And there's a couple of things that really strike me. Um, First of all, the sequence of events that unfold in John chapter one, and then just a little bit about the preaching of John. I'm not going to spend a long, long time on either of these, but but they are interesting as you think about the providence of God. First of all, the sequence of events. the first verse of the passage we, in the first verse of the passage we read the words, and the next day the next day. This is the last of four successive days which are documented in John chapter 1 and it's one of the few places in scripture where you've got the sequence of days unfolding in the next day and the next day because sometimes stories are told and it's hard to gauge was there a week between it was there several months between it and you don't really know how much time lapsed but in John chapter 1 it's one of those unique places in the the gospels and in the New Testament where you've got the sequence of events and the next day and the next day and the the little section that we read in in John chapter 1 is is the last of four successive days these four days are recorded here for us um, because John believes that outside the three days surrounding the death and resurrection of Christ they were probably amongst the most eventful days of history Jesus was stepping out of a life of obscurity into the limelight he was stepping out of um, 30 years of, uh, of living in Nazareth unseen unheard of now he's taking the stage of world history and there are three really four really eventful days and that's why we have this sequence told by um, John the gospel writer the Jewish, Jewish community, of course, in, in Jerusalem were beginning to wonder who this character John the Baptist was. He was out in the wilderness preaching by the River Jordan. People were flocking from Jerusalem to go and uh, listen to John the Baptist. Now, I always think John the Baptist would be a really interesting character to study because as far as modern-day evangelism goes, he did everything wrong. He dressed in camel skin and just looked weird And uh, instead of going to where the people were, he went in the very opposite direction, out into the wilderness. I mean, he did everything wrong as far as modern day evangelism is is concerned, and yet God blessed him in the most miraculous way ever. But the people of Jerusalem, the leaders of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, were beginning to wonder who this character was. And so on day one, which is recorded from verses 19 to 28, they send this fact-finding party... Down to meet with John the Baptist, and they 're basically saying to John the Baptist, "So who are you? Are you elijah? Are, are you the great prophet that is to come? Um, are, are you the Messiah? Who exactly are you and uh, Of course, John the Baptist um, made it abundantly clear that 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 he was not the messiah he says i 'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness." The one who comes after me, he says, there's someone coming after me much greater than me. I'm, I'm just the forerunner. I'm just like the person that has come to introduce you to him. The person coming after me is much greater than me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal straps, the one that's coming after me. So no, I'm not the one that that you think I am. That was day 1, verses 19 to 28. Um, It's clear that John understood his place. He's not the one. He has come to introduce Jesus. And sometimes I think... We as preachers need to remember that. We are not the center of attention. Jesus is the center of attention. He's the one that we must direct people's gaze towards. Day 2, verse 29 to 34. John realizes that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now whether he knew that before this point or not, I don't know. Maybe he did know that Jesus was the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And maybe he knew who Jesus was, but he chose this moment to identify Jesus publicly. And so he sees Jesus coming towards him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. Remember that Old Testament Passover lamb? Here is the lamb of God. This is the lamb that all of those lambs were pointing towards. This is the sacrificial lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. Then you've got day three which is told from verses 35 to 42 Um, John is with two of his disciples Andrew and Philip John the Baptist he's got two disciples Andrew and Philip and uh, he saw Jesus again and he says to these two disciples there's the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world and the two disciples that were with John immediately left him and began to follow Jesus and then Jesus asked them a question what do you want? see Jesus hasn't got any disciples at this point um, and, and two of John the Baptist's disciples leave John the Baptist and they begin to follow Jesus and Jesus turns around to them and says what do you want? it's a great question isn't it? it's a great question for all of us to wrestle with what do I want? what do I want from Jesus? I, I'll tell you what I want from Jesus I want eternal life That's what I want. I want forgiveness of sins. I want to be reconciled to God the Father because I know that in my sin I am estranged from Him. I'm cut off from Him. And I need somehow to be forgiven and reconciled to the Father. That's what I want from Jesus. But these disciples, they scramble um, an answer and they spend the day with Jesus. So one of those um, disciples was a man called Andrew. And Andrew had a brother called Simon Who would be called Peter And one of the first things that Andrew did When he met Jesus Was to go and find his brother Andrew And tell him we have found the Christ And he brought his brother Simon to Jesus Sometimes we look at these Bible characters And we just imagine that they supernaturally Arrived on the pages of scripture Or on the stage of history But the truth is, every single Bible character had a fairly ordinary story. And Peter had a fairly ordinary story. His ordinary story is that his brother came and told him that they had discovered the Christ. And invited him to come and meet Jesus. That's how ordinary Peter's story is. His brother came and says, come and meet Jesus, would you? God is at work I think in all of our lives and I I don't think I don't think it's just an accident that you're here tonight you know that I don't think it's an accident that God has taken you on the journey he has taken you on I think God is stirring our hearts and drawing us to himself just as he was in this story a very uneventful story isn't it Yet, that's the story of how Peter met Jesus. His brother met Jesus first and invited him to come and and meet Jesus. I was reading a while ago about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis uh, was corresponding with an atheistic student. And the atheistic student unburdened himself to Lewis and uh, C.S. Lewis responded to his questions and at the end of the letter this is what he said He he said I think that you are already in the meshes of the net the Holy Spirit is after you and I doubt if you will ever get away my prayer is that you will never get away if you're not a Christian my prayer is that you're already in the measures of the net. And my prayer is that through the sequence of events that are unfolding in your life, that God will bring you to himself. That's my prayer. So a little bit about the sequence of events. A little bit then about the preaching of John. John was with his two disciples and as Jesus walks by he says there's the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. And Philip and Andrew immediately um, begin to follow Jesus. Now you might be tempted to think that's a bit unfair isn't it? John's got a couple of disciples and Jesus comes along and steals them. It's not very fair is it? But you know what? That was the desire of John's heart. John was looking for Jesus, waiting for Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. He had come to introduce Jesus. So when Jesus came, there was nothing that delighted John more than to see his disciples going after the one that he had been speaking about. It was the thrill of his heart. But how how does all of this relate to um, Peter? Well here is what I I was thinking. Um, If when Andrew met Jesus. The first thing he did when he met Jesus was go and get his brother Simon and bring him to Jesus. The first thing he did. So here's my logic. Don't you think that when Andrew discovered John the Baptist for the first time, that he had also said to his brother Simon Peter, you've got to come and listen to this guy preach. I mean, you listen to these Pharisees and, and these rabbis teaching in the synagogues, you've never heard anything like this camel-skin preacher uh, by the River Jordan. And I am absolutely convinced that Simon already met, had already met John the Baptist. And he's already familiar with John the Baptist's preaching. And I am convinced, in my own mind, that Simon Peter is been exposed to the preaching of John the Baptist and he's been already starting to think about Jesus and and this isn't just brand new in his mind he's been exposed to the preaching of, of this great character called John the Baptist he's heard John preach about subjects like repentance Luke chapter 3 you can read a little bit when you go home about John's sermons on repentance. What is repentance? It means a change of direction. It means a change of behavior. It means being sorry for doing this and starting to do this instead. That's what repentance is. It means stop rip, ripping people off and stealing their cloaks. That's what John the Baptist said to them. Stop extorting, extortion, uh, extorting money from people or stealing money from people. It means all of those things. He'd listen to his sermons On things like repentance. I think Simon probably was already aware of John's sermons on things like. The one that comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So I can baptize you with water. And that's a symbol of your washing away of your sins. And it's a symbol of your repentance and your change of direction. But you see the one that comes after me. He will give you the Holy Spirit which will empower you to live the kind of life I'm talking about. I can't do that. But the one that is coming after me, he can do that. So I, you know what I'm trying to say to you? I'm trying to say this, that basically I'm convinced that Simon has already been exposed to the preaching of John. And he's ready for this moment when it comes. He's ready for this moment when it comes and I just wonder if you, you're you being prepared by God through the preaching of faithful servants either here or elsewhere and you've heard about Jesus and the wonders of Jesus and what Jesus can do and I, I, I wonder if you're being prepared by God through the preaching and through the sequence of events in your life to come to Christ well that was Simon Here's the second thing I want you to think about: the persuasiveness of Andrew. A couple of things about that. First of all, Andrew found Peter. Andrew found um, he found he found Peter. Andrew is a fascinating character in the Bible. Um, he's only been a convert for a matter of hours. I mean, literally, he's a convert for a matter of hours. Yet his heart is so transformed by Jesus, and so transformed by the gospel, the first thing he wants to do is share this news with others. It's like a beggar, and he has found a ton of bread. He doesn't just want to eat it himself. He wants to share it with all of the other beggars that he knows are starving and needing something to eat. That, that's Philip, he, or Andrew rather. He, he's, he wants to share what he has discovered with, with others. Philip went to get his friend Nathaniel, but Andrew went to get his brother Simon. And you can almost hear the air of ex- excitement in Andrew's voice as he tells Peter, We've found the Christ. We've discovered the one that John has been speaking about. The one that would baptize us with the Holy Spirit. The one who would immerse us in the Holy Spirit and would change us and purify us. We've found him, Simon. You can almost hear the air of excitement, can you, in in Andrew's voice as he goes to talk to his um, brother. A day-old convert. What's really interesting uh, is that we sometimes say the toughest people to witness to are our family, don't we? We often say that, I can't witness to my family, someone else will need to witness to my family. But that's where Andrew started. That's where Andrew started with his own brother. And I would be prepared to argue that Peter wasn't the easiest person to witness to. Because he was impulsive. Impulsive. I mean, his mouth was in action before his brain was in gear on occasions. And I don't think Peter was the easiest person to witness to, but that is where Andrew began. And every time you meet Andrew in the Gospels, he is just bringing people to Jesus. So John chapter 6. There's a huge crowd. They're in the wilderness. They've got nothing to eat. Jesus is concerned about this crowd and tells the disciples to feed them. Philip, who's uh, like a treasurer, bean counter, says, listen, it would take 200 denarii, it would take six months' salary to buy enough food to feed this crowd. But Andrew finds a boy, a boy who's got five loaves and two fish, and what does he do? He brings them to Jesus. The next time you meet Andrew is in John chapter 12, verses 20 to 22. And and Jesus has entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And some Greeks have arrived in Jerusalem. They're not Jews, but they've arrived in Jerusalem. And they want a conversation with Jesus. They want to talk um, to Jesus. And Philip doesn't know what to do with these Greeks. They've come to Philip and said, can we talk to Jesus? And Philip has no idea what to do with them. So you know what he does? He goes to Andrew and says, what should we do with these Greeks? And without even a second thought, Andrew takes them to Jesus. And wherever you meet Andrew in the Gospels, he's just introducing people to Jesus. He's bringing people to um, Jesus. It's not contrived. It's not something that he has to work up. It's just him. He's found the joy of the ages. Why in the world would he keep it to himself? He has discovered more bread than he can ever eat. So why wouldn't he share it? I can't keep this to myself. I need to give this away to others. Some of us think to ourselves, what could I ever do for God? What could I ever do for God? I, I, I mean, I'm not gifted. I, I can't sing. I, I, if I sing, people leave. I, I can't preach. If I preach, I bore people to death. But haven't all of us, every one of us tonight, found the bread of life? Haven't we found the joy of the ages? Couldn't we just somehow talk enthusiastically about what we have discovered in Jesus to others? As naturally as they talk about their antique cars and about their great-great-grandson or whatever it is they're talking about. Couldn't we just talk as excitedly? as Andrew talked to his brother Peter um, about Jesus here's my question who better to go and reach Peter than his own brother Andrew and who better to reach your friends and your family than you like don't you, it's not a coincidence that you're in their lives that's, that's not a mistake that's not just an accident God has placed you there Right there in the middle of their lives. God has placed you there in the middle of their lives. Whether it's your family or your neighbours or your work colleagues. God has placed you there. Just to tell them a little bit. About the bread of life. Well, Andrew went to find Peter. And then Peter went to find Christ. He was partly prepared by John the Baptist. But I think he came for another reason. I think he came because he could see the impact that this Jesus had made on his brother. He was convinced he was that, that something radical had happened to his brother as he looked at Andrew. He, he was full of the joy of the discovery of Christ, and he could see that Andrew was infectious. He'd had an encounter with Jesus that had transformed his outlook, and somehow Andrew sa- uh, Peter said to himself, I-, I would like a little bit of this. I'd like a little bit of this, so I'm going to go and meet this Jesus. We often wrestle, I, I think we often wrestle with, you know, how, how, how do you begin to witness to other people? And it's a fair question. How do you begin um, to witness to other people? So what if we just tell others about what we've discovered in Jesus? What about just telling other people what Jesus has done for us? What about just telling other people who we believe Jesus is? Because that's, in a nutshell, what Andrew did. It's just as simple as that. He just spoke about who he believed Jesus was. What Jesus had done for him. What he thought that Jesus could do for others. And it's as simple as that. And having listened to his brother, um, off he went to discover Jesus for himself. And it's really important, I think, to notice what Andrew asked his brother Peter to do. He didn't ask him to come and join a church He didn't ask him to come and join an institution. He just asked him to come and meet Jesus. It's as simple as that. And uh, I don't know if I ever told you this story, but there was a guy that I knew from the south of Ireland called Walter Burrell. He used to work for the Siemens Christian Mission. And I met a guy in... I was speaking at a conference outside Toronto, and this guy came up to me afterwards and began to talk to me said I'm from Dublin and so on and he told me a story he said you know I, I was I was a Mormon missionary and I was walking through the streets of Belfast on my way home from a missions trip I got off the ferry I was walking through the docks to catch the train back to Dublin and he says a little man with a big gray beard and a Sierra car stopped right beside me and he rolled down the window And he said to me, what are you doing, son? No church will be able to save you. Only Jesus can save you and get you into heaven. And he rolled up the window and off he drove. And he said, I was so troubled by what that man said. Only Jesus can get you into heaven. That when I got back to Dublin, I was tormented. And about two or three weeks later, I went to a little brethren assembly. And I almost kicked the door down to get in and asked them, Who is this Jesus that can get me into heaven? Because I want to know him. And it's just as simple as that, isn't it? Come and meet Jesus. that That's what... Andrew said to his brother Peter here's the last thing with this I'll be finished Um, verse 42 we're told that Jesus just looked at him that statement really grabbed me Jesus just looked at him I think there's more to that statement than we might think I I think as Jesus looked at Simon did Simon have a, a sense that Jesus was looking not just at him but into his heart reading him like a book did he have a sense as he stood before Jesus that, that he was being read in a way that no one else had read him? Anyway, Jesus said to him, you are Simon, son of Jonas, but you will be called Cephas. Two quick things about that. First of all, Jesus pinpointed his present weakness. I don't know, today we just use names as... Um, Basically handles by which we identify one distinguish one person from another, some people have good names, and my my younger brother and his wife just had a baby today and uh, and uh, anyway, my sister and I have had a conversation about the name that they gave this baby, which has been really interesting but names don 't mean a lot in, in our society, but in Bible times, names were a summary of a person 's character. <coughs> They, they they were a summary of of the person's so for instance there was a man called Joseph in the New Testament and, and they changed his name from Joseph or Joses to Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement Bar, Hebrew word for son and Abbas means encouragement so he's the son of encouragement that better suits Barnabas's name let's call him the son of encouragement let's stop calling him Joseph we'll call him Barnabas because names in the first century were so important and, and it's interesting that this name that's given to Simon is that he is called Simon son of Jonas or son of John I don't know if you knew that Jonas means dove. So if you're a young, if you're a son of Jonas, it means you're a young dove, dove, doesn't it? And what a great picture of Peter—he's like a young dove fluttering and bouncing all over the place. He hardly knows which direction to go in. Should he believe the preaching of John? Should he go in a different direction? And you see that all through his life. He's impetuous, impulsive, he's jumping around all over the place. And and the thing that struck me about about this all, all, all is that as Jesus looks at Peter or at Simon and says, pinpoints it right away you're Simon son of Jonas you're a young fluttering dove flying around in circles you've no idea what direction to go in and, and here's the thing that I, I just want you to take home with you about that you know God knows the truth about me God knows the truth about me I can roll into church and with a smile on my face and stand up at the front and, and, and people don't really know me they don't know about the stuff that's going on in my heart. They, they don't know that my wife's just spent the week in bed. They don't know about uh, how frazzled I feel running here and running there and speaking at this and speaking at that. Nobody really knows me, but God knows me. God knows me, and God knows you. Just as a new Peter, you're Simon, son of Jonas, you're a young, fluttering dove. And there's great encouragement in that, isn't there? God knows you. And he knows what you've been through this week. But the challenge of that is, there's no room for pretense with God. Because I'm great at pretense. I, I, I can put on a show. But it's so pointless when it comes to my relationship with God. Because God knows the real Robert Murdoch. God knows exactly where I am spiritually. And God knows exactly where you are spiritually. So there's no room for pretending. And there's no point in pretending. Because the only person we're fooling is ourselves. And then finally, um, he not only pinpoints Peter's Simon's present weakness, but he predicts his future strength. He says, but you will be called Cephas. Uh, the word cephas is the Greek spelling of an Aramaic word um, "kefa," which means rock. You're a young fluttering dove, but I am going to make you into a rock of a man. I'm going to change you, Peter. I'm going to transform you. And I am going to make you into a rock of a man. The master potter would firm up the pottery... And make him into something that's stable and dependable. And that others could lean upon. And you see that in the New Testament. It was a long journey. There were lots of twists and turns in the road. God had to bring him sometimes through some fairly deep waters. But God made him into a rock of a man. I mean, he writes his letter... At the end of the New Testament. And you read some of the statements he makes. And you say. What a character Peter is. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you. 1 Peter 4.12 1 Peter 5, seven. Cast your care on him. Because he cares for you. As he writes to these Christians that are being persecuted. He says to them. Cast your care on him. Because he cares for you. First Peter 4 verse 8 he says, love each other deeply because love co- covers a multitude of sins. Great statement. And if anybody knew that, Peter did. I, I wish I had time to really expound that little statement to you. But isn't it interesting, after Peter denied Jesus with oaths and curses, isn't it interesting to note where he was found? Do you want to know where he was found? When Mary went looking for the disciples, where did she find Peter? She found him in the house of John, the beloved disciple. He put his arm around him and said, Peter, I know you're a failure. And I know that the others would wash their hands of you, but you come back to my house. Because I want to see, get over this and move forward. And Peter writes at the end of the New Testament, he says, Love covers a multitude of sins. He knew that from personal experience. And now he's writing to those that he cares deeply about, his congregation, his church family. And he says, Love covers a multitude of sins. And you see, at the end of the New Testament, through all the twists and turns and highs and lows that God had brought him through, you see that God actually did make him into a rock of a man and there's two quick, two quick things that strike me about that and, and it, one is God wants to make us strong and stable God wants to make us strong and dependable that others can learn from and believe on He wants us to be consistent He doesn't want us to be yo-yos you ever see someone who yo-yos up and down And God doesn't want us to be yo-yos God wants us to be dependable that others can learn from and that others can lean on. And, and some Christians are all over the map. They're all gusto for three weeks and then they disappear for three months. But God wants us to be dependable. And the other thing that strikes me is, is this, that you can change. If Peter is going to be made into a rock of a man... And, and if God is going to, if Jesus is going to do this in Peter's life, and at the end of the New Testament we actually see that it happened, then the thing that encourages me is that you can change. You don't have to be being tripped up by the same sins that tripped you up 20 years ago. 10 years from now, I don't have to be... Being tripped up by the sins that are tripping me up tonight. By the grace of God I can change. And become the person that God wants me to become. So I look at Peter. And I think about his journey with Jesus. And I don't care what people say. It was an intriguing journey. And I think about Jesus looking looking at him and saying. You are Simon son of Jonah. But I am going to make you into Cephas. And I think to myself. There's hope for me. Maybe just maybe God could make someone like me into a rock. You know, there's a wonderful illustration of this in the story of Gideon. I was reading it a while ago. Um, the Judges 6, the Midianites had been rav- ravaging the, the land of Israel for seven years. Remember that? And, and the Israelites went to hide in the hills whenever the Midianite season arrived, came in at harvest time, ravaged their crops. And what did the Israelites do? They went and hid in, in caves. Gideon is in a wine press threshing grain or corn. In a wine press. Now, to thresh grain, if you're a farmer at all, you'll know this. You put the stalks out and you hammer them for all you're with, worth, and it causes the, the corns to rise up in the air, and the wind blows the chaff away, and, and the kernel then falls to the ground. And then you gather it up and you crush it, and you make bread from it, and make porridge or whatever you do with it. But he's doing it in, in a wine press. In a big hole in the ground where there's no wind. Because he's afraid of the Midianites. He's scared of his life of the Midianites. And as he's threshing this grain, an angel appears. And the angel says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And you say, mighty warrior? Wouldn't you be better calling him scaredypants? Laughter He's called a mighty warrior because God sees not what he is, but what he can become. And that's the difference. And God looks at me and he sees not just what I am, but what I can become through his grace. And you be encouraged. Maybe you've fallen flat on your spiritual face in this past week. God sees more than that. God sees what you can become by His grace and with His help in the future. Thank you so much for your kind attention um, tonight.